Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, the biggest announcement that we've ever heard is the announcement of your love and grace and forgiveness and peace and renewal and healing and leadership in our lives that comes because you have been with us and still are with us in the person of Jesus and the power of Spirit, revealing who you are and what we are all about. We celebrate these great truths as we gather now to open your word and continue to learn what it means for our lives today. Be with us, Lord, because you love us and because we want to love you more and more. For Jesus' sake, amen. I had a little conversation yesterday uh, about uh, prayer, um, just sort of in general. Um, I, I love to think about prayer, love to study prayer, love to hear other people pray, love to think about prayer from the broad perspective of the history of the church. And our prayer is partly about talking to God, but God gives us things to talk to Him about. And part of prayer is talking to God about God and uh, saying to God, this is what we know about you, this is what we celebrate about you. And God gives us the opportunity to do that so that we get our heads on straight with the world, okay? How many of you had your heads on straight with the world this morning the instant you woke up? Good. We have a room full of honest people. Nobody put your hands up, right? You know, you wake up and the first thing you have to do is say, where am I? What's going on? Am I alive? You know, do I smell the coffee? Did it come on and is the coffee ready to go? All those kinds of things. And prayer is partly getting our heads on straight about the world. And when we celebrate God, when we celebrate who we are and what we are in the presence of God, that helps to get our heads on straight with the world. So that's one of the reasons we have prayer when we gather together, so that we make sure that our heads and our hearts are in the same place and in the, the same mode, if you will, uh, as we move into this community exercise together. Now, this is not a lesson about prayer, but just thought I'd mention that to you because it sort of hit me the other day uh, as I was saying a prayer. What am I actually saying in a prayer? And there's lots of different kinds of praying, of course, lots of different contexts, but that's part of what goes on in prayer. We are in the midst of a conversation with each other that also is helping us keep our heads and hearts straight with God and with ourselves as we're walking through the wonderful theological affirmations of the Apostles' Creed. And we are at that place in the Creed where we are going to talk about believing uh, in the Holy Catholic Church. Before we move directly into that, though, I want to say just a word about the Creed itself, the Apostles' Creed. We talked about this maybe at the beginning of the fall, but I think it helps us to remember this again. There are some uh, historic Christian denominations or parts of the Christian family that do not use creeds or confessions, right? We have the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Confession of Faith, a whole lot of statements over the history of the church, some very brief like the Apostles' Creed, some very long. But they all are attempts to sort of summarize and, and collate and lift up the essential truths and affirmations of the Christian faith. Some of them are more directed to particular historical situations. For instance, we have a creed in uh, or a confession in our Presbyterian history called the Declaration of Barman, Barman, Germany, where the church in Germany during the rise of Nazism, the church stood up and said, this is what the church believes. And it's very clear, it's an in-your-face over against this is what Nazism teaches. That's one of the ways that we confess our faith sometimes is to say, you say this, but the church says this, we say this. Other times, there is a more general discussion of what the meaning of the faith is. That's kind of what the Apostles' Creed is. That's what the Nicene Creed is. They're addressing particular theological issues, but they're, they're related to the broad concerns of the church. Some denominations have felt that it's dangerous and wrong to try to summarize the Scriptures, to try to summarize Christian faith or to highlight any particular thing. They say, our creed is the Bible, the whole Bible, everything in the Bible. And, and that's a good thing to say on the one hand. It's a good thing to say, we look at the whole of Scripture, and nothing ever transcends the authority of Scripture. 
God, by the power of the Spirit, speaking through the Scriptures, has given us a message, okay? That's a good thing to say, but there's another side to the story. If you've ever visited with me, listened to me, you'll always understand that I always think there's at least one other side to the story. And the other side of the story is that the Bible is a really big, complex book. And there are certain themes, there are certain affirmations that rise to the top that we say that the Bible is speaking about. And not every place in the Bible, not every word in the Bible speaks of those things with the same kind of force or power. For instance, the Bible gives us explicit directions how to build the ancient tabernacle, the ancient temple, or how to build the ancient covenant of the ark. And there are very few people who use those passages in their devotional life every day, right? Frankly, I don't care too much about the dimensions of the tabernacle, okay? I care more about Paul's prescription for love, patient and kind, never angry or jealous or boastful or rude. I care more about the proclamation from Jesus, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so my point there is that on the other side, of this question of whether we can summarize the Scriptures, it is very clear, even for those who say you should never summarize the Scripture, we all do that. We all come to certain affirmations about about what the Scriptures say to us, and that's essentially what the creeds are, is saying this is the important stuff. This is the most important stuff. This is the summary statement. And so we live in the tension between those two things, always looking at the Bible and then always looking at the ways that the church historically has said, this is what we say. Does that all make sense to you? I think that's good for us to remember, not only as we walk through this uh, series of, of lessons that are kind of focused on the creeds, but as we think about the general way in which we study the Scriptures, right? Every single one of you has Scripture passages that you love, others that you like, some that you dislike, many that you've perhaps never read, and some that just don't seem to say much to you about your daily discipleship, like the dimensions of the ark or the temple, okay? So, as we look at these central affirmations, let's remember that we are, in a sense, putting our own interpretation of Scripture on things, and everybody has to do that, but it's a good interpretation because we are standing in the company of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the life of the church and millions and millions of thoughtful Christians, and that's part of what we're doing now as we gather here with all of the wonderful theologians, some of whom have more years of experience in the life of the church than others, and and we share with each other. So, we come to that place where we talk about the Holy Catholic Church, and I wanted to talk about the creeds and the history of the creeds because one of the benefits that you and I have of being part of the body of the church, the Holy Catholic Church, and don't worry, I'll explain what that's all about, right, is that we have the benefit not only of being in a relationship with God by ourselves, but in a relationship with each other who are also in a relationship with God, and that is meant to be a good and positive thing. And we get that when we study and look at the Apostles' Creed. So, Let's read a couple of passages. I think these will be very familiar to you, one from Paul's letter to the Ephesians and then one from uh, the first letter of Peter. And before we read, let's just set up the context a little bit. Uh, You have, if you have any history at all in the life of the church, you have, I'm sure, heard a lot of preaching and teaching from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, maybe not quite so much from the letters of Peter. Uh, but certainly a lot. And why is that? Well, it's because in Paul's writing to the Ephesians, Paul is speaking to the whole Christian church at that time, not just to the Ephesians. In fact, the letter itself, the body of the letter itself does not say, this is to the Ephesians. And Paul does not give a lot of specificity in the letter, saying, talk to so-and-so and greet so-and-so and deal with the fight that so-and-so are having in the life of the church. Ephesians is more like a general letter to the whole church, kind of like the letter to the Romans is. We call it Paul's letter to the Ephesians because the earliest manuscripts that we have and the earliest references to this letter say that it is from Ephesus. And it could simply be that as the early church was collecting all of these letters and documents that were being tossed around, uh, that somebody said, here, I'm from the church in Ephesus, and here's a copy of something that we got from Paul. So, 
hence we have the letter to the Ephesians. Does that make sense to you? So the letter itself wants to speak about broad theological affirmations, essentially though, talking about how God has been at work from the beginning of time to create and then to redeem His creation and to welcome all people into a relationship with Him through what He has done in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? Paul has especially emphasized that theme that's so important to him that God is including even the Gentiles in all of this. You remember from all of our studies before that one of the first big arguments of thousands of arguments in the life of the church was about whether or not God meant or wanted to include the Gentiles in this saving work of the Jewish Messiah. Peter argued opposite of that for a while. Paul argued in favor of that, especially as Paul went out into the Gentile world and Gentiles began to say, hey, we like this Messiah thing too, as well as the Jews. And so Paul has been talking for a while about, in the letter to the Ephesians, about the fact that God includes all of the Gentiles. God includes all y'all. God includes every single human being that He ever created which pretty much includes all human beings, right? Within His loving and saving purpose. That's kind of what's going on in the letter to the Ephesians. Now, in Peter's letter, the first letter of Peter, the situation is a little bit different. We know that Paul is writing from prison. He tells us that, probably writing from prison in Rome sometime around the year maybe 55 or 60, okay? 20, 25 years after Jesus is gone. The first letter of Peter is written with more specificity, and Peter wants to talk a lot about how the church needs to be strong, how the church needs to hold on to its faith in the midst of difficult times. And that makes us think that Peter is, uh, the letter itself is written from the perspective of a later time in the history of the church, um, maybe towards the end of the first century, maybe 70 or 80 or even 90, the year 70, 80 or 90. Because we know that the persecution of the church began to ramp up then. In the early years of the church, there was no such thing as persecution because there were hardly any Christians, and they hadn't begun to make waves in the world yet. But later on, Christians began to make waves, the world began to pay attention, and persecution began. And Peter talks about the issues of persecution. So that's kind of the context of 1 Peter. We don't know for certain that it was Peter who wrote the letters, but certainly it stand, these letters stand in the tradition of Peter. Okay, Just a brief introduction to this material we're reading so that we get the, the historical context and the timing kind of in our minds as well as uh, the concerns and the thoughts that are going on in the author's minds as they're writing to the churches. So let's read from then. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, and then 4, 1 through 6, and then also 1 Peter 2, 4 to 6, and 9 to 10. So then, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. In Him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. That was Ephesians. Here's First Peter. Come to Him, Jesus. Come to Jesus, a living stone, though rejected by mortals yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, 
in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, let's fire up a couple of microphones because I want to ask you all some questions and we need to hear what people are saying. We're going to get, have Terry get her steps in today. This is a... <laughs> right? Here's, here's the question I want to ask you, and I want to hear some answers back, okay? There are several dozen, I think, images and thoughts and mind pictures that are referred to in these two passages. There's lots and lots of material. But I'm curious to know, as I read through this, as you read through this, what big ideas, what things percolated up in your own mind as being particularly captivating or interesting or confusing or complex? What sort of was boiling around in your mind as, as we were looking at these passages, okay? Raise hands so we can start getting the microphones going around. See, I'm throwing you a curveball. You're going to have to start talking earlier than normal, right? Time to switch on the brains and there we go, okay? What was going on in your heads? Okay, absolutely nothing. All right, well, this is a, this is a pedagogical question. I'm sure something was rolling around in your head. What big stuff was happening? Okay, over here to Laura. We're called to be unified in Christ, okay? Why would you think that, that, that issue of unity was a big deal in these passages? What were your clues? <laughs> okay, you were aliens and foreigners, right? Okay, but now you're included. Okay, okay. All right, let's start there. Let's start there. Aliens and foreigners, that's some of the first language that we encounter, right? You are no longer strangers and aliens. How many body here, uh, how many people here know an alien? Okay? How many people here have been cl close to an alien, but you didn't actually see the alien? Okay? I'm from New Mexico, remember? Oh, that kind of an alien, not the other kind. Of, okay, there we go. Aliens and strangers. Remember, one of our principles of Bible study I think is so important when you run into words is you got to think about those words for a while. Okay? Now, the question of aliens is an important question in our society today. We're talking about people who have nationality in one place, but then they go to a different place, okay? How many of you have ever traveled outside the United States of America? You have all been aliens, right? You have all been aliens. What does it mean to be an alien? Talk about what it is like to be an alien. Yes? Something different from the environment or the culture that you're in. Okay, you're moment. different from the environment and the culture that you're in, right? You're not at home, really. Okay, someone else. What does it mean to be an alien? Don't speak the language. You don't speak the language. Yeah, yeah, you don't speak the language, yes. You don't have the protection that citizens might have, right? Okay, good point. What else does it mean to be an alien? Say it again. You don't belong. You don't belong. How many of you have been an alien, not in a different country, but just in a different place where you live? Anybody here ever walked into a room full of strangers and you're the only one who wasn't told the dress code? <laughs> <laughs> See, I've learned over 42 years of teaching the Bible that if you really want to dig deeply into a woman's heart, you talk about the dress code. <laughs> Men could care less about it, right? No, that's incredibly sexist. You can shoot me for it, right? Okay, to be an alien means you don't belong, you're not protected, you're not at home, you don't understand what's going on. It's not a good thing, is it? It's not a good thing. Aliens and strangers. Really kind of talking about both things, right? 
How many of you have been in a group of people and an alien or a stranger has come into your midst? Of course you have. Of course you have, right? Presents some interesting challenges when there's somebody in the group who does not speak the language that you speak. Isn't that interesting? You know what it's like to not speak the language everybody else speaks. You know what it's like to have someone there who does not speak the language. Okay, I think it's important to get in touch with those kind of visceral, emotional kinds of things as we talk about these theological passages. Now, remember that Paul has been talking to, uh, to the Ephesian Christians, to all Christians, about how God has, has created this plan and executed His plan in Jesus Christ to incorporate everybody. And Paul says, so then, right? That's kind of like therefore. So then, you are no longer angels, strangers and aliens. You are something else. What is the something else that he says? first image that he talks about is citizens with the saints, okay? We immediately, when we started talking about aliens, we immediately started talking about the issue of citizenship. Does anybody here have dual citizenship? I think that's important to talk about. It's important because Paul wants to talk about the fact that we are all citizens of a particular place. Okay, that place isn't here, except that place is here. And that place is bigger than all of those other places that we talk about. I don't care if it's Scotland or Ireland or Guatemala or Mexico or Timbuktu, wherever it is. Timbuktu is not a country, is it? Where is Timbuktu? Is it Morocco? North Africa somewhere? Yeah, it's over there somewhere. Yeah, okay. We are, we, all-inclusive, all of us are citizens of this place. And of course, Paul's going to propose, Christian theology is going to propose, that that place of which we are all citizens is the only place ultimately that counts. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? I have just come from a place, of course, where I was an alien where I did not speak the language except for a few important things like kifak, which means how are you in Arabic, Um, buza, which means ice cream in Arabic. Um, uh, There's a few other words I know, but we won't go too much further, right? This issue for Paul, this issue for the church is who is included, who is excluded, what makes for inclusion and exclusion, right? Citizenship, that's one image that Paul uses. We're very aware of the issues of citizenship, okay? And also, he says, members of the household of God. What does that household idea bring up? What's the image there? A household. Your family. Your family, exactly. How many of you come from a big family? Anybody here from a big family? Um, let, let's get a little more. How many of you have, let's say, more than four brothers and sisters? Anybody here? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. If you go back a couple generations, you get more people answering that question, right? My dad came from a family of 10 siblings, my mother a family of six. Okay. So lots of us now have smaller families, but we know what a household is like, right? How many of you have ever felt uh, like a stranger in your own family? Okay? How many of you can identify other family members who are strangers in the family? Once you get a family growing pretty big, you often find, because families are made up of human beings, that that families often have people in them who are sort of on the outside, people who are sort of on, on the inside. It's interesting. Okay? Paul uses all kinds of images here to talk about the communities within which human beings belong and don't belong, and the communities within which we have issues and problems of belonging or not belonging, right? Then he keeps on going, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Foundations and cornerstones. Now what's the image? A building, okay? We've gone from 
political citizenship, you're part of a nation or not, to household, you're part of a family or not, now to foundation and cornerstone, you're part of a building or not, okay? If Paul had taken the first draft of his letter to the Ephesians to my ninth grade English teacher, he would have failed immediately because he kept throwing in so many different thoughts and images all at once and confusing them and mixing them up and not just sticking with one. You know what I'm talking about? Right here, in just the space of of a couple of sentences, and probably with Paul, this is one long run-on sentence. That would be another issue my grammar teacher would have had with Paul, right? One long run-on sentence. But there you have three amazingly simple, everyday images of what Paul is actually talking about. Is Paul talking about our citizenship in Israel or Assyria or Rome? Is Paul talking about our family named Baca or McCorkle or McCracken or Salazar or Rodriguez? Is Paul talking about our foundation in a building like this or a building like your homes? What is Paul talking about? The church. The church. Let's talk about the foundation image for a second. Foundation and cornerstone. There are some professional builders in this room. Actually, there's exactly one professional builder in this room, okay? His name is Tim. So, Tim cannot get to answer these questions, okay? Talk to me about what you want in a foundation of a building. Strength? Say Reliability? Stability? Level? Accuracy, yes. You want a good foundation. You want something, a foundation needs to be very exact in its dimensions. It needs to be very level. It needs to be very strong, right? Uh, We were talking just recently about, about our ministry of going down into Mexico to build houses. And the time that I went down... Um, the, the folks who had poured the foundation uh, got it wrong, and, and we, we built the framing of the house, and then we set it on top of the foundation, and the foundation, one corner of it was going, uh, was going my dad would say, Saigodlin. Uh, that's a technical term, by the way, in building. It's uh, and and it didn't go all the way to the end, and so we had to, to find a way to jury-rig another little piece of the foundation to go there. You got to have the foundation strong and exact, or what happens? It all falls down. It all falls down. There we go. What's, what's the, uh, the children's nursery room? Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay? Yes. That's right. The ground underneath it and the way you do the foundation on that ground is, makes all the difference in the world. You apparently have traveled in Italy before. Who is the foundation, right? Yes, right. Ultimately, there is no physical foundation on the planet Earth that is absolutely 100% perfect. We know that in California, don't we? The ground can start shaking. Okay, let's talk about a cornerstone for a minute. Okay, how many here have ever built something with stone? Anybody here? Yeah, what have you built with stone? A school. A school. Cool. You built it actually. You went and cut the stones and put them and placed them? There we go. There we go. You didn't physically do it yourself, but you observed enough of it that you learned what they're doing, right? In, in, in Paul's time, in Jesus' time, You either built structures out of wood, which were pretty much meant to be temporary structures, or you built structures out of stone. If you built a structure out of stone, you were probably building on stone, okay? But the cornerstone was the most important stone. Why was it the most important stone? Well, if you got the cornerstone right, it actually determined the direction of the two walls coming off of it, and it it was part of the foundation, really. You determined whether or not the walls were going to go straight up and down or not, and the cornerstone was also selected of the highest quality stone because the walls would be joined together with the cornerstone. Of all the stones, the cornerstone is the most important stone, and if it's wrong, everything else is wrong. If it's right, everything else has the possibility of being right. 
All right? So now Paul says we are building on a foundation. We're building with a cornerstone. Notice what the foundation is. What is the foundation here? Apostles and prophets. Who were the apostles? Who were the apostles? The disciples, right? The, the, the original folks who were with Jesus, who knew Jesus, okay? That word apostle means a messenger. Those folks who knew Jesus and could talk authoritatively about Jesus because they knew the guy were considered to be the apostles of the church, okay? There were 12 originally. They had to replace one, but the one that they, re, that they took as a replacement for Judas was also someone who had known Jesus, okay? Later on, Paul has to argue that he too is an apostle because he too has met Jesus Christ, okay? That's who the foundation of the church is, is these apostles and prophets. I love the order that Paul puts them in. This is not, this is not chronological order. Who are the prophets? You know the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, right? The early Christians understood that they were the extension, the continuation, part and parcel with, part of the same organic unity uh, with the, the nation of Israel. The church is the new Israel. The prophets of Israel and the apostles of Jesus are the foundation. And then, of course, the cornerstone is Jesus Himself. Sunday, Jan talked about the fact that lots of denominations kind of tend to speak about one part of the Trinity more than another part of the Trinity, and she's right. That is true. Some talk more about God, some talk about Jesus, some talk about the Spirit. Well, when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about God and the Spirit as well. It's very clear in the New Testament that Jesus is the big deal, right? Because even the Jews can talk about God, right? And, and even non, non-Jews and non-Christians can talk about uh, the spirits of the gods or whatever. It's Jesus that is the specific version and form and understanding of God that we want to talk about. So, this is who we are then, Paul says. We are not strangers and aliens. We are not excluded, but we are included, okay? This cornerstone, Jesus, in Him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Okay, now Paul is beginning to move from a conversation about what God has been doing in Jesus in welcoming us all into this new unity, this new entity. Now he's beginning to talk about what that means for us, okay? How many of you wake up in the morning and say, Dear God, thank you for making me into a living stone that's being built into a holy temple for you? Anybody here do that? Nope. I don't even want to hear what you think about when you wake up in the morning. (laughs) Right? Do you realize theologically if you say you are a Christian that this is part of what you're saying? You are being being built, okay? We put a lot of emphasis in our study of the Scripture on the tense of the verbs. Not you have been built and it's already done, not you will be built sometime in the future, but you are being built. That implies that some building has already started and there will be more building to come and the building is going on right now. The building is going on right now, okay? Let me ask you a question. What part of God's building are you? Think about that a second. Yeah. Do we have any nails in the room? Do we have any... Any windows in the room? Want to be a window? Yeah. How about any two-by-fours? Okay. Do we have any uh, uh, sewage drains in the room? I could do a whole series. I could do a year's worth of sermons, couldn't I? Wouldn't that be fascinating? We don't have, you know, we have songs, you know, I'm a, I'm a light for God and I'm this and I, nobody says I'm a... I'm a sewage drain in the kingdom, in the, in the household of God. Oh, that has so many possibilities. Let's just not go there. Yes. 
Exactly. We are the temple of God. We are the building of God. That's why we are called. I'm just repeating what you're saying so it gets into the tape, right? We are called to be holy and perfect because God is living in us, right? Isn't that fascinating? How does that, let's talk, that's, that's exactly right. It's beautiful. Now let's unpack that a little bit. What does that mean for you? How will you live? How will you think? How will you act if that's who you are? What does that mean? Yes. Living stone. Living stone. Yes, you are a living stone. The church is not buildings. Okay? We have to repeat that all the time. The church is not buildings, the church is us. Where we are, there the church is. Where we are not, the church does not exist, okay? I think of that sometimes when I'm the last one on the campus of this church, that once I go, the church of Jesus Christ does not exist right here. A lot of cool buildings do, but not the church. Interesting. What else does it mean that we are the temple? Yes. Building that's constantly under construction. Okay, what if we're a building that's constantly under construction? Well, let's have a vote. Are we a building that is constantly under construction? How many say no? Okay, yes, we are. Yeah, there's yellow tape all over the place. There's dust and, 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 and scraps all over the place. And there's building inspectors all over the place. Right? What does that imply? That means we're not finished yet. And yet we already are the temple. Paul's very clear in that. We already are that building. So we have work to do. Yes. Well, I always feel like since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. that we should be taking care of our temple. Yes, okay. There's, there's almost a physical aspect of this. The temple of the Holy Spirit. So take care of, of this physical body that God has given you. And then by extension, the emotional, psychological person that you are and the spiritual person that you are. Right? Right? Now, we all need work. And frankly, every building that ever existed always needs work. Right? Am I right about that? Constant renovation and update. You got to replace the batteries and those stupid smoke alarms that start going off in the middle of the night. And you got to repaint and you got to do. That's just the way it is. That's part of why we say you got to come to church all the time. What we mean is you need constant maintenance. And sometimes a car has run into us or a boulder has rolled down the hill or a fire has wiped everything out except the foundation and you got to rebuild. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have had a boulder crash through your life at some point and destroy half of your life? Yeah, fascinating. I love that image. What else does this all say to you? <laughs> function of that is to purify and clean, keep the house clean. There and we go. so that would be your job. Okay, good. So we got someone who's stuck on the sewage drain. I, I, I knew I was going to regret saying that. But you're on to something. The sewage drain cleans out the stuff that you don't want in the house. We, you know, I, I would propose that in some sense all of us are called to be all parts of the building, okay? Now, some of us are better at some parts than others. I know some people, okay, in their life in the body of Christ who are really good at draining the bad stuff away, okay, going and dealing with it. Remember that guy on TV, the dirty jobs guy? I, I don't remember his name now. The dirty, right? Mike, Mike the dirty jobs guy, you know? <laughs> He had a holy calling. I think he had a holy calling to lift up in front of society all those people who do all the dirty jobs so that some of us don't have to. You better thank God for the person in the life of the church who drains away the bad stuff. It's not easy. It's not fun. But it's important. It's holy. Yes, back over here. I was looking at verse 22 where it talks about in whom you also are builded together yes. for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And there's different buildings hold different things. A bank holds money. A silo holds corn. Yeah. But we're supposed to be holding 
the Holy Spirit. Yeah. We, we have a purpose to this building. It's not just to look good. It's not just to fellowship, but there's something special inside this particular building. Yes, exactly. There's something special inside. There's something, you all heard what she had to say. I don't need to repeat it, right? Something special inside. Let's go on with this just a little bit because it's going to tell us more about how this happens, okay? I get so excited about some of these things. You can just go with them forever. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay. Paul always worked this way. He said, God is cool and amazing. It's absolutely magnificent what God has done for us in Jesus. Aren't we blessed? Aren't we happy? Aren't we joyful? And because of that, you have work to do. You have to go be a sewage drain. Boom. This is what we call the exhortation section of Paul's letters. It's what I call the implications. I therefore beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling right? When you do wake up in the morning and say, I am part of the temple of the living God, that changes the way you do the rest of your day, I would hope, right? Now, how does Paul say we're going to do that? Look at what he lifts up here. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with, love, unity of the Spirit, bond of peace. That's quite an interesting list, isn't it? How do you be part of this building, part of this kingdom, part of this family? This is the way you do it. I love the fact that Paul starts with the word humility here. I think there is a tremendous shortage of humility in our world today. Patience, gentleness, love, peace. I had a a, telephone interview yesterday for 30 minutes with a, a reporter of a local magazine, um, and, and he asked me, he said, what, what do you think is the central thing about being Christian? And that's a fascinating question. What are you trying to do in your church? Uh, and I talked with him about the fact that I think as we follow Jesus that God is teaching us how to get along with each other, Right? how to get along with it. That's what Paul is talking about here. Maybe that's why I gave that answer, because my mind is focused this whole week on these passages, right? How do we get along with each other? Here's how we get along with each other. You agree to do everything I say because I know best. Okay? (laughs) Try again, okay? (laughs) Right? Humility, gentle, we don't have to talk about what those, we could talk about those things for a long time, right? Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul never divides up God and Jesus and Spirit. It's all one thing for him in the bond of peace, right? And then he goes into this one business, right? Laura, the answer I was looking for when you first said this is about the unity of the church, right? Uh, the reason you said that is because of these passages, right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is above all and through all and in all, one hope of our calling, one body, one spirit, one, 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 one. What do we get, not get about one? Pretty simple, right? Paul talks about some of the most important uh, things, there's a better word I'm sure, that exist within our understanding of the faith. Look at, look at what he mentions, right? One body, talking about the body of the... There's another image we haven't talked about much, right? We got a kingdom, we got a family, we got a building, now we got a physical body, a human body, okay? One spirit, okay? Lord, faith, baptism, God and Father, above all, through all, and in all. Yeah, yeah, the Craig Courtney anthem, isn't it? Yeah, one, one hope, one faith, one Lord, exactly, 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 Okay? I think it is, it's coming. It probably is Sunday. Yeah, because your music director is really good at picking stuff that I like to go with my sermons. <laughs> right? In fact, sometimes he says, here's a great anthem. Why don't you preach about it? <laughs> and that's really good. No, that's a beautiful thing. That is an absolutely beautiful thing. Right? This, that, that last uh, phrasing, verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. We think that that language probably um, 
It could have been original to Paul. He could have just created it whole cloth, but it's also probably language that was refined over time and became something of its own creed, its own affirmation for the church, right? You got a bunch of different folks trying to figure out what this following Jesus business is all about, and this is one way that they sort of summarize what it's all about, okay? Now, in this room, we have talked about the fact that some of us come from different political nations, okay? And I say that carefully, political entities, right? Those are things that we have created. God did not create Ireland. God did not create Guatemala. God did not create the United States of America. God created the land on which we draw the lines that says that's where those places are, okay? What did God create. God created the whole world, and He created us to live on it as one family, one kingdom, one body, one church. You cannot get any more explicit or clear than that, and yet we have problems doing that, okay? Let's go back to the first century for just a second. In Paul's time, in Paul's time, what were the divisions? What, what were the countries that existed? What were the languages being spoken? What were the different cultural and ethnic groups? There were the Greeks, there were the Romans, there were the Hebrews, there were the Egyptians, there were the Assyrians, right? All kinds of different folks speaking Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin and many, many different variations thereof, right? How many of you have studied uh, the Germanic languages? Anybody here studied the Germanic languages? How many of you understand that there are lots of different versions of German, right? There are lots of different versions of English, by the way, okay? There's English as it is spoken in Birmingham, Alabama. There's English as it is spoken in Boston, Massachusetts, okay? There were, in a sense, even more divisions and variations culturally, politically, religiously in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, than there are today. Because in those days, when you got outside your own little valley or your own little community that maybe extended 50 miles in any direction, but only 50 miles, in those days, the languages changed from region to region. The religion changed a little bit from region to region. Today, we are becoming a world where, even though we have so many different differences, today we are becoming a world where there is more unity and continuity than ever before, right? Because we communicate with the whole world all the time. We are becoming one world in some sense. It's a very slow process, very messy, painful, difficult process, but it's actually happening. You can go pretty much any place in the world today and find somebody who speaks some version of English or Chinese or Spanish, okay? I think those are the big three languages, aren't they? Yeah, those are the big three languages. So, Paul is writing to a very badly uh, fragmented kind of world, and he's writing to a Christian church that has all kinds of people now coming into it from all kinds of different places but he's lifting up the idea of the unity of the church. Let's go to 1 Peter for a second. I'm only going to give 1 Peter a little bit of attention because essentially what 1 Peter does is add some more images onto this idea of the unity of the church. Come to him a living stone, right? Jesus is himself a living stone and you essentially are a living stone, right? Come to him and let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Oh, there's another image right there, a holy priesthood, right? We are the temple of God. We've talked about that image of the temple of God. Remember the old temple in, Israel, in Israel's heyday was the place where people understood that God lived. And the priests who made the temple happen were kind of making sure that the people and God were connected with each other. We are that holy priesthood. We are the ones who make sure that God's people are connected with God. With whom in this world today do you connect somebody to God? Who is that person that you help connect to God? You ever thought about that? You are responsible for 
probably one other person in the world, and, and encouraging and supporting and revealing and developing their relationship with God. Isn't that interesting? There's a big enough job description in itself right there. It stands in Scripture, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. There we get that idea of who Jesus is again. And then we have another long list, probably from the liturgical life of the church. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own people, in order that. That's the therefore. That's the implication. So that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness and out of being nobody into being somebody. What will you do today because of this description of who you are and what your job is in the world? Think about that a few seconds. There's at least one thing, I'm certain of it, in your life today that you will do, should do, can do, might do, because of who you are here. Think about that first. I'm not going to let you out of this room until you answer this question. Yes. Share it with someone else. Good. Good. Someone else. Yes. Be kind to another person. Okay. What else? Love everyone. I want you to think about one specific person that you're going to love today. Okay? Your 90-year-old mother-in-law. Good. The reason I'm pushing you on that is because it's easy to talk about everybody, which means nobody. But there is one specific somebody you just identified, or maybe, who maybe is not so easy to love right now, or maybe who needs a little extra love right now, right? Good. What else are you going to do? Yes? Listen. Listen. Are you thinking of anybody in particular? Okay. I won't push you any further than that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Ah, your son's coming home this weekend. You're going to pin down a time to go to Mass. Okay, beautiful. Someone else? Ah, have soft-spoken conversations. Beautiful. As opposed to the unsoft-spoken conversations, right? Yeah, the yelling. The yelling, yes. Try to forgive someone that's hurt you. Yes. Yes. Someone else. Yes. He has called us, right? He is calling you right now. He's calling you as you read these scriptures, right? Jesus is calling. Jesus is inviting you into this life, right? You are going to go out and be the church. You're going to be that place where somebody intersects with God and meets God today. And we're all going to do that together. I haven't so much emphasized the all y'all aspect of this, but y'all know what I mean when I say all y'all, right? So we just had a word. I'm going to pick on you for just a second, right? You're going to take your son to Mass. Now, I would suggest that that Mass is probably not going to be in a Presbyterian church, is it? And that's perfectly fine, right? I could care less where it's going to be because it's part of my church, right? It's part of my church. People sometimes say to me, Jack, what do you think about the problems that fill-in-the-blank church is having today? And sometimes they expect me to go off on, oh, well, they're doing this and they're doing that and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and I have a harder time doing that now. Not that I'm not tempted to, but I have a harder time doing that because I'm learning that that's my church too. There is no Christian church that exists anywhere on the face of the planet that is not your church. Okay? Now, that particular form of Christianity may have hurt you terribly. It may be making horrible mistakes. In fact, that's the whole church, <laughs> right? But it's part of your church. 
I'm glad that I'm getting to preach on this one uh, this week. I hadn't thought about this, but having just come from the Middle East and met a lot of Christians who don't speak my languages and who don't do church the way I do church, right, but having heard them talk about their love of Jesus Christ, there's where it is. There's where it is. They know the same Jesus I know. And more importantly, that Jesus knows them and knows me. Yes. If I remember correctly, when I went to catechism many, many years ago, Mm -hmm. and we learned the creed, Mm -hmm. it said the Holy Christian Church and not the Holy Catholic Church. That that wording changed at some time. Am I remembering right? Yeah, Linda, the other Lutheran here said so. (laughs) That wording was probably changed by your individual congregation in order to get away from the word Catholic, Catholic, okay? Now, I'm tempted right now to say you have to show up Sunday morning to hear what the word Catholic actually means. But just in case you're not going to make it Sunday morning, okay? Let's talk about that for just a second, and then we'll stop. Lots of people get stuck on the word Catholic in this creed, okay? And I understand why. Don't worry about that. The reason we get stuck is because we equate the word Catholic, and if you read the Apostles' Creed, it's not a capital C, it's a small c. We we equate that Catholic with the Roman Catholic Church, all right? I oftentimes refer now not to the Catholic Church, I talk about the Roman Church, okay? The word Catholic comes from uh, the 14th century. It means to talk about the universal, all-inclusive church. That's really what the word Catholic means. It includes and involves everybody, okay? The Roman church, the church that grew up out of Rome and the bishopric of Rome and didn't really become anything like what we understand today as the Catholic church until the 6th century, Okay, the church lived for 500 years without having the Roman Catholic Church. That's part of the history you need to know. But that church took the word Catholic to say we are the universal church, okay? Even though not everybody in the Christian church at that time agreed to let the Roman Catholic Church be the only church. That's part of our history. But that's what the church is trying to say. And so you and I, as good... um, rebellious, cranky, cantankerous, contrarians, meaning Protestants in this room, okay, in some way, shape, or form, you and I can say that word with perfect uh, clarity and transparency and conviction because what we're talking about is the Christian church everywhere, not just the Roman Catholic Church, but the Syrian Orthodox Church and the Maronite Church and the Presbyterian Church, of which there are several dozen around the world and a couple dozen here in the United States, okay? We're talking about the all-inclusive church. That's what we mean when we say the word Catholic. This is a question kind of for our sisters from the United Kingdom. I'm curious if uh, the Church of England, when they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, if they recall the creed as it's recited in Protestant churches in England, do they say Catholic with a small c, or did the congregations in the Protestant churches in England change it? No, Catholic with a small c, yeah. That word, here's where words become extremely important, and it's a shame that they get adulterated over time. The English word Catholic is the best way to describe in its full meaning, what the creed was trying to say when it talked about the, the universal, all-inclusive church, everyone who claims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When the Apostles' Creed was written, the Roman Catholic Church did not exist, okay? What the creed writers were trying to say is that anybody who follows Jesus, who claims Jesus, or who is claimed by Jesus, they are part of the church. That's what the creed meant to say and still says, okay? And it does not allow, uh, this is a good Protestant speaking, it does not allow anybody in the church to say, no, it just meant this piece of the church over here and not that piece of the church over there, okay? 
We can go on and on with that forever, but, but that's a very good question to ask. It's a very good question to ask. Okay, we got to stop or else you're going to leave the church altogether because the pastor goes too long. God, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for including us in what you're doing in the world. Take us, Lord, as living stones and uh, make us better parts of your building. Help us to fulfill the roles that you call us to. Help us to introduce other people to the love that you have shown to us all for Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you all.